John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus, Addenda, Volume 21, Entry 655.LK2040, Certificate Number 22311, Interrobang. Interrobang? Interrobang. Interrobang. This was the punctuation show. And I recently got a note from Jonathan that I thought was fun. We mentioned some other weird... Uh, Punctuation marks, mm-hmm. you know, the asterisk comes is the diminutive for from the Greek asteros, you know, so it's it's not a star but a little star, little star. And we mentioned the obelos, which is like uh, the dagger, the thing. Like it looks like a cross, but I guess they call it a dagger. It's like if we've already used asterisk, the second footnote is this, and it keeps vampires away. It would have been before the cross had any symbolism, so a dagger would have been much more. Crosses still existed. They just well, yeah, but they, they just put them on churches. Well, this was before it came from before churches. That's what I'm saying. But the cross still exists. Oh, the cross exists. I mean, you could, you know, it would have been part of a lattice piece or a, sure. You would have seen a stick, and then another stick would have fallen on it, and you would have gone, "Oh, look! If, and if it's a dagger." And imagine the first the first vampire happening to see ah! <laughs> <laughs> what is happening to me <laughs> before christianity do you think vampires reacted to, like is it whatever your own hmm. um like w- would a jewish person uh, not be able to use a crucifix but they could use a star of david because it's the personal belief in the anti-vampire right what, what, what godly powers zoroastrian have have shown to a vampire to scare him away uh they love fire Hmm. And vampires maybe don't? Garlic. It would have been garlic the whole time. Except garlic, is garlic a new world uh I don't believe vegetable? So. No, I think the whole Allium family is uh, is old world. So garlic would have been available to all races, colors, and creeds. Except for Native Americans. What would Native Americans have done um if confronted with a vampire? They would have lived at peace with the vampires. Oh, they use every part of the buffalo. In their enlightened way, they mm-hmm. would have said we leave the vampire in his part of the woods. Probably. I don't know. Yeah. That seems likely. But in mentioning the obelos, that dagger thing, uh, Jonathan pointed out that we did not connect the, you know, if you put the isk suffix, if you the diminutive. the isk off of your letter sweater. Ripping the letter isk from his varsity sweater. He turned that obelos into an obelisk. Yes. That was my first uh, thought. An obelos, obelos is the Greek word for nail. So I guess that's what they thought the dagger was. It's, you know, it's the 
shaft and then the head of the nail. Um, an obelisk, a little nail, was actually like a skewer, like you would make your kebabs or whatever the Greek oh. equivalent of kebabs are you would make on an obeliskos. Uh, and, and I guess the first Greeks in Egypt saw that shape of monument and they thought, oh, it looks just like a big kebab. It's just a skewer. But interestingly, that is probably the origin of the word pyramid. Pyramid is believed to come from pyramis, which was a Greek. Pyramus. Pyramus, you're right. Like, uh, um, except now it sounds like it's in New Jersey. Paramus, New Jersey. Which is kind of like it's, I'm a, do it in a, it's a pastry. Accent. Like imagine a Greek pastry that's kind of, maybe it's like a turnover. So it's kind of pyramid. It's like peaked at the top. The, the dough is folded over the top. I mean, anytime that you pour some grain out on a table, it's going to form a pyramid. Uh, they, I guess this particular kind of a pyramid with a square base oh, yeah. rising to a, you know, in four triangles to a peak. Was that was a kind of Piroshki. That was a shape that reminded them of, of something they saw in the bakery. Is Piroshki... Just Russian for pyramid? Oh, I didn't even think about that. I don't know. Oh, wow. No way to find we, out we, now. <laughs> we uh, we never will do addenda on an addenda. Our format doesn't really allow for a... At some point, maybe every couple years, we need to do a meta-addenda episode. Where it's all about addenda. No, the Russian word for pyramid is pyramida. The etymology of piroshki. Pyrozhok. I don't know. That's history. the thing about Russian is it only has like four different sounds. So every word just sounds like pyramid or no. Those are the two words in Russian, pyramid or no. I guess pirog means pie, which sounds like, I don't know. I guess well, it could be related. The Greeks are saying pyramids look like pies. There you go. Well, maybe so. Borrowed first. Oh. I see. It came to it came to English via Russian Mennonites. Well, that's not really relevant, but thank you, Wiktionary. Uh, Jonathan also had a funny story about you know we were talking about different punctuation used to convey uh, irony. Uh, when he was a grad student in the UK, he noticed that his you know the fellow British students his age um, would use smiley faces in their texts, and you know coming from. Uh, ironic millennial American culture where smiley faces were frowned on, if you will. Mm. He thought that was a little odd. Like he, he thought it seemed corny and people, you know, he would ask his friends if they wanted to do something and they would say, sounds fun, smiley face. And he would think, what is the deal? Did he think they were being sarcastic? Yeah. He asked, what's the deal with a smiley face? And they said they actually over there, the custom for that age group was to use the smiley face to convey sincerity. Oh, because if you, People are so ironic now that when you just say, like, sounds good or can't wait or whatever, it sounds like, sounds good, right. can't wait. Like, it, unless you convey sincerity, the default reading of every sentence would be irony or sarcasm. I would think that the, I thought that at least in our culture, we had solved that problem by putting exclamation points at the end of every sincere statement. That's true. Um, yeah, you would not say, sounds good, exclamation point, if you were doing the eye roll emoji. No. Sounds good, period, would mean would mean sounds good yeah oh god life is really life is such a slow drag but sounds good smiley face if i put sounds good smile no i get sounds good smiley faces from people and it means it's it's sincere but there could be a galaxy brain level beyond that where people start to use smiley faces to to mean fake yeah yeah uh merriment or mirth well all europeans think that americans are falsely enthusiastic 
my experience in Europe is that it is a universal quality over there that they think we are goobers who are like, wow, amazing about nothing right. about like, oh, this is just a sandwich. Like, That's why we talk amazing. so loud. Hey, oh my God, it's crazy. Look at this building. Whoa. This is 200 years old, Doris. You're amazing. You did such a great job. And it's like, no, they just did the job. But then Europeans are sad, lonely people. Uh, they have cigarettes, though, to get them through. Still, yeah. What um, What do you think we would have done with with emojis if they had been available to us in the 90s? <laughs> like, I had emoticons in the 90s, so I used them pretty much identically. Yeah, but you're you're late 90s person. I'm talking about like early 90s. In I was, 1991. I was an early adopter. I what, used, you were using emoticons? I was using colon close parenthesis for, you know, in the... In, in the, when? In the early 90s, I think. Early 90s? Yeah, you'd, you'd see them online and uh, There were no online in early 90s. Sure there were. There when was ASCII you, art in Usenet. And when, were you, when did you first go on Usenet? 1993. Wow. No, wait, fall of 92. Whoa. Where else was I going to find my uh, uh, Twin Peaks news groups? Unbelievable. And my X-Files news groups? I was completely unaware of um, there being even such a thing. Something's buzzing. I know. What is that? Can you, the listener, hear that? I don't know. You know what Did it was? Did you put your phone too my close to the thing? My phone is over there. You know, if you put your phone on top of it. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not getting a text now. My mom sent me a text. That's good that people can Do you think you could ever train yourself to hear the content of the text from the interference pattern? Like that mask I was showing you, it's a COVID mask that has the Wilhelm screen waveform on it. That's that's weird and cool. But yeah, what that's going to spark a fashion in people putting waveforms on their masks. Of, of, of them saying racial slurs. Yeah, exactly. You can't wave, cancel me. You can't even tell what this is. A waveform across their chest of, of someone saying like, dance party weekend. You know what you could do is you could sell like a reader, like a wand oh, that you yeah, run like over a, the tattoo, like a, like QR, a QR code. Reader. And it says, uh, you know, space, the final frontier or whatever it was you put on your arm. You know what it'll be? It'll be when Google Glass finally comes back, when everybody has the long-awaited heads-up display, and it will be able to translate all that stuff. I would love to have a Google Glass where every time I see a QR code, I don't have to, you know, get my phone out and juggle my phone to figure out the menu, but the QR code just opens like a lotus in my Google Glass, yeah. and out comes the full menu or, or receipt or whatever it is, like in 3D, like I'm tripping. Wouldn't it be great if um, if things like QR codes in your Google Glass actually appeared as... Restaurant menus, which they now... That's what I'm saying. It's a yeah. little tiny thing. Yeah. It comes in, out at you. So so we went from a restaurant menu to a QR code to a virtual restaurant menu that appears in your very expensive heads-up display. I don't love the QR code. It turns out I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a spoiled little boy, and yeah. I want somebody to hand me a laminated card. Could have told you that. I hate it because I've gone to several baseball games this year, and I don't have a single ticket... Yeah. To add to my shoebox full of baseball tickets that go back to the kingdom. I can give you a ticket. They gave us, do I have them on me? They actually gave us paper tickets for uh, for that game where I threw out the first pitch. Mm -hmm. And because I was like, you know, just give me some. I don't want to be juggling all these virtual tickets and trying to figure out how to resend them in Ticketmaster. Yeah. Please I just it. send me paper tickets. I thought you were reaching for one. I thought I had, I, I don't have one, but I'll bring you one. Thank you. Because they sent me a bunch. And then when we tried to get into that level, the club level with those paper tickets they looked at us like can i ask you where you got these whoa like i'm home counterfeiting 
paper Mariners tickets and they've, they've caught me. Right. Because it's a paperless season. I bought these box tickets from a guy out front. <laughs> I was like, well, the front office sent them to me. Oh, that's probably a big part of it is they're controlling scalping. Yeah, that's true. Can By you... making it incredibly difficult to go to a baseball. Got two QR codes, two QRs. The problem is I had to sign up for the Major League Baseball app. Yeah. In order to even get into the baseball yeah. game. And then they were like, what's your password? And I said, I don't know. And they were like, you have one because you signed up for this six years Major ago. Major League Baseball is now tracking you with the ballpark app. And then they started sending me five emails a day. Hey, do you want to dress like a five-year-old? Great. Here's all the jerseys. I was like, unfollow. It is the, it is the national pastime. What could be more American than, getting than spamming you five times a day? <laughs> Entry 709.1T0416. Certificate number 40618. Left behind. This is an uh, erratum probably to stave off legal prosecution. Uh, in the Left Behind show, we mentioned I mentioned that there was a tradition of other uh, kind of Christian eschatological books that are also called Left Behind. Oh, yes. That you may recall. Uh, and uh, one of them, I think I credited to a North Star, a small Christian press called North Star Press. And um, we got a note from a listener defending the honor of North Star Press. Okay, go on. Uh, which is a small publishing company in Minnesota. Figures. Gabriel's grandfather used to run the liturgical press of St. John's University. Uh-huh. And uh, and moved on to this sm- little small press now run by his grandmother, aunt, and cousin, uh, or later run by his grandmother, his aunt, and now his cousin. That just is a small press for local Minnesota authors, and he wanted to make absolutely clear that they had not published any kind of weird Hal Lindsey oh. rapture books. What do they publish? Uh, F- uh, like farm almanacs. I'm gonna um, guess um, poets writing about um, blackberries. Uh huh. I don't know. Let's find out what North Star Press publishes. They're advertising The Mare and the Mouse, the first volume of the Stories of My Horses trilogy. Um, The Medicine of Place. This is kind of what I wanted. A collection of epigrams and easy essays, um, which combine the Spartan poetry of Javinson Hansen with the deep-hued photographs of Chuck Norwood. Oh. Two great tastes that taste great together. This, this is, is very some, Minnesota. This is some Minnesota public radio stuff <laughs> right here. Absolutely. And if you uh, if you donate at the $100 level, you're going to receive a copy of Terry Hauptman's Rubies in the Mud. A tote bag, a coffee mug, and a Neumann U47 because we have so many of them stacked up in our closet. This is the sequel to uh, Hauptman's four other poetry collections, Masquerading in Clover, Rattle, On Hearing Thunder, and The Indwelling of dissonance. She has taught ethnopoetics oh as well as genocide. <laughs> okay. Wait, she teaches genocide? Hopefully, hopefully, yeah, hopefully uh, not. It's an, it's not an instruction against, class. Hopefully against it. Yeah. Um, who knows? It might be a community college course. So the North Star Press of St. Cloud actually seems like a wonderful institution. I don't know. I don't know if there's two, if there's another defunct Christian press of the same name or if I screwed up a similarly named small press, but I apologize to North Star Press for implying that they had anything to do with um, rapture fiction, and please do not sue us. Rapture fiction, you know, Saint Cloud is is um, you know, it's kind of a, it's unusually located. It's you know, it's seventy miles from 
Minneapolis, St. Paul. Is that the place that has the universities? Like, is that where? No, that's not where. Um, no, that's Northfield, where Carlton and St. Olaf are. What's yeah, in St. Cloud? Um, it's kind of like sort of a, I guess, like a bedroom community. I mean, it's there is St. Cloud University is there, oh, yeah. uh, but I feel like its major its major tourist attraction is a dam. No, no offense. No offense to the great city of St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, enjoy your damn tourism. Entry 895.NU2406. Certificate number 14751. The panorama of the monumental grandeur of the Mississippi Valley. Uh, people did send us lots of recommendations for uh, other panorama. Yeah, it turns out there are, still there are quite a few uh, on display. Michael recommended uh, from his time in Memphis, it's his favorite His favorite thing, if you're ever in Memphis, is a huge 3D relief map of the Mississippi River. I think, uh, I think 200 feet long. Uh, where is this? Yeah, it looks about 200 feet long. It's like you, you can actually walk on it. It's like the... Mississippi River Valley in miniature. Oh, it's it's at River Park. Uh-huh. Uh, That's a popular name for a park in towns along the Mississippi River. <laughs> well, the one in Memphis has a giant miniature Mississippi River Valley you can stomp through like Godzilla. We also heard, you know, uh, in reference to your mom's um, dislike of Napoleon, uh-huh. if you go to the Battlefield of Waterloo even today— uh, at, long after the battle, they built uh, a rotunda, and uh, I think it has one of those 360-degree like views of the battle. Yep. Uh, many, several people sent us the work of Stephen Wiltshire. Have you seen this um, this uh, neurodivergent British artist? Uh, is he the one that can go up in a helicopter and look out the window <laughs> for and, like one second? Yeah, and then he can draw like a, a, a like photorealistic pictures of of London. Yeah, he just takes one look at a landscape and then he can just sit for days and draw like buildings with the exact number of windows. Yeah, every building, every landmark, every street in in miniature in perfect. What is his name? Scale Stephen Wiltshire. He. Um, I read an article about him a long time ago, and I and it still comes into my mind the uh, the image of him doing these incredible, like massive landscape drawings. Yeah, he just he just sits there holding a rapidograph and just draws a building at a time the way it is in his mind's eye. His famous story is him taking a twenty minute helicopter ride over Manhattan. That's what it was, and then he just sits down in front of a nineteen foot long piece of paper and draws the whole island. Uh, people watched live via webcam. He's an MBE. Oh, he's a yeah. That's right. Two thousand six. Yeah, that's he, incredible. He's got his own gallery. There's a year wait for commissions from him. If you fly into Heathrow, you'll see his photograph with all the with all the British luminaries. He, um, despite his astounding memory, says his website. Whilst in Manhattan, he still managed to get lost and walk forty five minutes in the wrong direction before finding the diner where he wanted to eat. So I guess the helicopter did not go past the diner? That happens a lot to people until they realize that the streets are numbered. <laughs> uh, we also got a very long note from John, not you, John C., 
Uh, How much of the long note from John um, are you going to read? Would you like me to read it verbatim? How much of it is telling us that we're wrong, and how much of it is telling us that we're good? No. Uh, when we were talking about the the kind of the elevated vantage point you got from those old panoramas, something that could not be seen in the days before aviation or aerial photography, um, he wanted John to- said, what about very tall people? <laughs> That's right. What about- Have you considered being LeBron James? No, he wanted to talk about his hobby, which has taken kind of a hit lately- Kite aerial photography. Oh, I love John C. Yeah, his name is, uh, well, his name's Kanap, but he loves CAP, K-A-P, kite uh, aerial photography. You you get a kite aloft, and then you f- you feed a, a camera up on a line. And wait for lightning to strike. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it's been used, it's almost as old as photography itself. Like, yeah. people were doing this in the 1880s when that was really the only way to, you know, look down a lady's shirt. or. Right. Oh, I assume ooh. so. It was in Italy. So you run it probably. up the kite string and see who salutes. It was used during World War One to map enemy trenches, um, and you would actually you would actually have to put a to, to time the shutter. You would have to like light a fuse like Wiley e. Coyote, and it would run and up the thing and pop the. You know, you'd have you would time the shutter that way. How is this not already an omnibus episode? I feel remiss. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't get too into this. Um, he got into it right in the early 2000s because now everybody had these super light cameras. Yep. Um, but no one had drones. But drones had <laughs> not yet been invented. And you didn't have to trigger your shutter analog because you could just use um, you know digital technology. You could use some kind of remote control or Wi-Fi even. I wonder what it would have been. Bluetooth? There's to there are balloons the that do this too. Well, we're getting we're we're just we're we're digging into what will be when we have forgotten all about this six months from now. This will be a great episode of the Omnibus. And not everybody listens to the uh, addenda. Like only one in twenty. You are the 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 generous faithful few who right. who get to enjoy this uh, preview. Yeah, that's right. Who who love the foreshadowing. Although, you know, because the addenda come out so far ahead of the episodes we've recorded recently, we may, months from now, record this episode, and it comes out right around the time of this addenda. Oh, that's oh, true. Oh, wait, no, it's the other way around. Yeah, the addenda be, comes out This will be right early. Before. Yeah, okay. So don't reference the other shows we did today. No, no, no. They haven't happened yet. That's right. It will be months and months from the time you listen to this. So in the early 2000s, when John started doing this, you know... It was right before drones were about to come out. And so there really was this sweet spot where you still didn't see a lot of imagery from, you know, when you're too high for a, higher than a house, but, you know, lower than an airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, like you could get a kite up to the height of the Space Needle and see from stuff from up there. But that was actually less impressive, he said, than just pictures taken from about 100 feet where you feel like you're flying around like Mary Poppins. Um and it reminded me, I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember the uh, the early 90s uh, craze of these um, in these pre-drone PBS videos of kind of low-flying scenery flybys? It would be like over New England. Sure. And the camera would, go, would swoop low next to a lighthouse, over a fishing boat. Over Washington. This was one of the the things. This was one of the big appeals of the of the Smithsonian Institution. You go sit in a theater and watch, you know, the miracle of flight. PBS would put this stuff on pledge drives. Like this was their biggest. They would sell VHS tapes of it, and it was because nobody had seen drone imagery. So it was really impressive to have a camera swooping low over uh, the sheep pastures of Devon or the 
Outer Banks or whatever. The first person I knew that had a drone, Adam Pranica, the former co-host with me of the Friendly Fire podcast, he got into drones early and he showed me some footage that he'd taken, you know, under contract, some real estate agent or somebody that had a big farm was like, oh, I need you to, and, and he showed me this drone footage and it did, it was like, to my then eye, it just looked like the moon landing. Like, how are you getting? People are not going to understand how weird it was to see, how just mind blowing it was to see low-flying aerial views. Yeah, you're like right there at treetop level, but you're not going fast. People would can... give people would give PBS $200 for that in the 90s. Oh, so cool. Uh, and now? Now you're just like... Everybody has it. Have you watched those uh, that competitive sport of drone obstacle course flying? <laughs> no. It's like, a, it's like a big money sport now. Uh, like these athletes sit... At a table with heads up displays. That's that's peak human performance right there. And they're every in, vein quivering. You know, they're they're in old warehouses or, you know, like like ruins and they fly these drones on these incredible, you know, the acrobatic sort of flights down chimneys and I don't think of this. And through, you know, hallways and up stairwells and through windows. Show. Oh, it's, you know, I've seen a video of it. I've seen phenomenal. a video of it. Like where they're I guess this was just more of a through crazy angles through a bowling alley, just like you can't believe the virtuosity of the pilot. I didn't know it was competitive. It's a sport. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's real. you know, uh, it was, it was nausea inducing though, because the craft itself is doing this, these impossible turns. But you just, have to watch it in first you're person. You're watching it. And you're just like, no, please. Can't you just watch it from outside? Like, I don't want to watch golf on TV if the camera's in the ball. Well, they're moving so fast that it's oh. just like watching formula one. You're yeah. sitting in a chair and it's, <laughs> I'm like, well, that was weird. I was watching a movie last night where the drone nerd uses his drone to like, as a peeping Tom, he uses it to spy on women. And it had not occurred to me that that was going to be a use case for these things. This is something we're going to discuss in a September show. Things becoming crimes because nobody's thought of them before. It's a New York City problem. I didn't of know. These drones just kind of flying around the uh, high rise apartments, just kind of hoping peeping. somebody's changing. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Are you? You're sitting there in your apartment. You know, the, one of the major advantages of having a high rise apartment. Nobody's doing that. You're high enough up there. You don't need curtains. You can walk it's around in your nakeds. I, I stayed in a hotel in Vancouver where the, the bathtub, the bathroom had a glass wall. Yeah. That looked out on the world. And I, I was so nervous. You know, I turned off the lights. I got in the bathtub. And then it was fantastic. You're looking out the window. I was peeping on people in other buildings. We stayed on one. We stayed. A, we had one of those in a house. We stayed in a Point Reyes, like just in Marin County, where the bathroom, the shower is just glassed in looking out over. And I was like, it was making me nervous. It was kind of looking out over the inlet. And I realized they had done it on purpose. The way the road goes up the hill, the forest kind of shields you. But there were um, deer and turkey vultures watching me shower, uh -huh. which made me a little nervous. I had a friend whose mom in the 80s, she had gotten divorced. She married a lawyer. They bought a condo, and it was one of those that where the living room was two stories tall and yeah. the bedroom was kind of – and the bathroom had a, a glass wall. Overlooking the living room? Overlooking the living room. The shower – was right there above the living room. And I was like, what kind of swingers are you people? In the club. And he was like, it's really weird when anybody up there is in the shower, I have to stay in my room. It's just like, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, it's 
just weird. Who is your architect? Get a less horny architect. That's, <laughs> that's the number one rule of modern life. Now that I'm thinking about this, I've stayed in multiple hotels where there's a glass wall between the shower and the room. Yeah, that's a new trend. Yeah. Uh, the, the Hotel Le Bleu in Brooklyn has it. And I, yeah, I remember being like, uh, excuse me, I need to take a shower. So can you, I guess, sit on the bed and watch? You should have to sign an attestation when you buy a drone that you are not going to be horny. I think I think in New York there's some way that they're I don't know what it is but they're they put like Just put something in the ch- in the chip that automatically pixelizes boobs yeah or or uh, shorts out your thing and sends it immediately <laughs> to the police department <laughs> it, if you if there's naughty bits in the visual field it turns them into the most yeah. horrifying thing possible yeah. like you see like two floating. Um, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr no. heads floating oh, no. floating over a woman's chest. Oh, I would voluntarily crash my drone into the ground. Entry 495.JE3623. Certificate number 12598. Four leaf clovers. Four leaves clover. Uh... uh we received the most annoying email from Kendra. I was talking about how I never find four-leaf clovers. Yeah. And Kendra from Saskatchewan wrote in to say that she was inspired by the episode to go out and look at clovers, and she uh, found six four-leaf clovers and a five-leaf clover. Well, that's the advantage of being in S- Saskatchewan. You think they have mutant clovers? I'm sure. Uh, have you been to Saskatchewan? Uh, I actually have not. Yeah. Is it, uh, does everything have extra leaves, tables? Uh, <laughs> Yes, uh, it is an it is it is truly God's um, God's uh, cutting board up there in Saskatchewan. That's what, that's what it says on the license plates. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on up there, and by a lot, I mean not that much. Saskatoon, Regina, that's really pretty much what's going on. Um, but clovers abundant. Uh, apparently I just feel like I, the other day I was like, you know what? I'm going to use my new knowledge to work. I was walking up to the post office and I passed, I'm passing abundant, uh, whatever you call that strip between the sidewalk and the road, mm-hmm. which is uh, the parking, parking strip, strip yeah. which is grass. But up here, you know, most of them are mostly clover. Yeah. And I was just like, okay, the squ- the four leaf clovers will look like squares. The three-leaf clovers will look like triangles oh, because that's what, what uh, that's what we learned on the right, in the entry. Right, right, right. And I did not see a single. You scanned square. and scanned and didn't see one. I scanned and I'm starting to think I'm just bad at finding clovers. No, no, no. You can see the 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 magic eye. I'm not good at looking for things. Do you feel like you are good at looking for things? I think I can. Well, this is this question you and I have been texting about for several weeks. Do I have a visual? Oh, that's Imagination. True. You claim when you close your eyes and someone says, picture a rose, that you see a picture of a rose. I do. It's visual. When I close my eyes, you I see- You see the word rose. I see gray static. And if you say picture a rose, I picture a description of a rose. Wow. It's called aphantasia, the lack of visual imagination. Percep- perception. I guess. Uh, but when I look at a crowd of people, I always feel like I can pick out the anomaly. I can see- The sniper? The suicide bomber, right? Or the sniper. I can see, I have pattern recognition, pretty good pattern Are recognition. Are you like, if I'm like, uh, yeah, just get that from the junk drawer, you can open the- Because I'm always the one in my household that's being told, no, it's right there. It's right there. No, I'm It's the on opposite. the counter. Uh, people come into my house and say, it's a mess. But if you say, 
Can you find the can you find the business license that you got in the mail nine months ago? And I can walk over and find find it in a stack of papers on a desk. It's like where's Waldo? Everything is in everything's in sight. Yeah, I know where everything is because I have a because I have a geographical a pretty good geographical memory that I think that they they go hand in hand, right? You can kind of picture. I don't know. For me, definitely not for me. Like I, I'll have a memory of where I put something, and I'll still just be looking at the drawer looking or whatever at it. And Mindy's yeah. like, "You're looking right at it." And you know, I've read some research on this, and if there is any cognitive difference between the male and female brain, which is still hotly debated, mm-hmm. one of the most likely options appears to be that kind of a of a spatial sense. You know that um, women tend to be better at object location perhaps from millennia of hunter of gathering oh. you know ba- berries and whatnot roots and berries whereas men are better at um dead reckoning from millennia of hunting trips yeah i feel like i have both i've always said i have a a very uh i have a female brain if such a thing can be said to exist that's the that's the caveat yeah if it turns out there's a difference you have one then I have one and if if there's no difference then, then I don't it have would be one. Sens- not sensitive to it, say that you did it would mean nothing to say that I did you would but, just say I have a brain but I have always felt you know a a, a, a simpatico with uh, you know with what I'm I I know is Thin ice to say that there is a way that women think. And yeah, I, what is that, John? And I feel like I this have won't get that. you into trouble. I feel like I have that. Well, intuitive and social and language based and community oriented, collaborative, collaborative. Um, although meh, uh, with a collaboration, and some but, of that might be cultural. We don't want to say that's. It might not be innate. Well, but within my own family, like a lot of that stuff, uh, you know, does break down Those by are gender. Traits. Yeah, um, I just mean in our culture in general. That's. Right. That may be how we're turning out women, not how their DNA is. Right. Although, you know, then, then how does Who it knows? count for me? Who knows? But I also have dead reckoning. So, and I think it's because in ancient times I was a sniper, but also a woman, a, a woman. Were, and, are those two different perhaps, lifetimes? Perhaps a king. Were those two different lifetimes or were you a woman sniper? But a female king. Oh. Uh, I think, uh, no, I was a sniper in a different lifetime, but you know, I was like the, I was like, a, yeah, I think I was a. A, a woman in past lives, but a, fe- but a, a female king, but a female king, but I was like a, Billie you know, Jean King. I was a masculine woman, like what, Billie Jean. Yeah, no. uh, you know, but I had dead reckoning. That's the thing. Okay, so the sum of all your past lives is you have dead reckoning, and you're very in em- touch with empathetic. my female side. That's right. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah, but uh, if you object to any of those uh, those terms, uh, please just disregard everything I just said and. Uh, yeah, please only uh, react to the things we say that you agree with. That's right. The rest doesn't count, clearly, because you don't agree with it. What would be the point of engaging with the stuff you don't agree with? Do the thing where you don't hear the things that you don't like. We also heard from a bunch of people. Somehow there was a sidetrack in the Four Leaf Clover episode about the the bad number. Um, the, the Nazis have taken over have oh, taken yeah. over 88. Yeah. How did we get to that from Four Leaf Clover? Oh, maybe because of the 4-H logo? Yeah, that's right. It was it was uh, the the Nazis use uh, the clover as a as a symbol. Oh right, right, and so did the so did the because um, it looks like the Iron Cross. Well, it's, yeah, it's the fours, fours and eights, and it's numerology, but also the Irish use the four like the Irish gangs, the sort of jump around, jump around, jump up, jump up, jump down. Dexie's Midnight Runners. Uh, no, that wasn't Dexie's Midnight Runners. That was uh, that was the Whatchamacallits. It yeah. was that Irish rap group. I love the Whatchamacallits. Um, 
but yeah, we talked about that and then, uh, and then we decided that we weren't going to talk about that. One of the things I said about the number 88 is that, um, no great athletes have been canceled for, for, or, or, you know, no great athletes have been involved in the, the new awareness of the number 88. 88. And of course I heard from, and I, I had done a quick look at retired jerseys and the only one I could see was like Alan Page of the Vikings. And I was like, well, we're not, we don't have an audience full of Alan Page fans, but it turns out, turns out. we do. <laughs> <laughs> because, for one thing, because Alan Page is pretty amazing. After he you know, quit his NFL career, in which he was, I think, the last defensive player, except for Lawrence Taylor, to be named MVP, he went to law school and became an associate justice of the Minnesota Supreme Court. Fantastic. Which is like Minnesota knowledge I had not previously had. Presumably, he does not have behind a hidden wall in his bedroom a uh, some kind of... Third Reich uniform. No, not no, at all. No. I mean, he may be a superhero. He might have a he might have a slide down to the Viking cave, but um, but no, his eighty eight is uh, is safe. And mostly, we heard from like Ted on Facebook and a few other listeners were pointing out that even though his jersey has not been retired, you do not want to tell a Steelers fan that there's no great eighty eight because Lynn Swan wore eighty eight. And we also heard from a few NASCAR fans pointing out that there's a great tradition of car 88. It's been driven by mm. Dale Jarrett and right. Dale Earnhardt Jr. Dale Earnhardt Jr., the famous one. A lot yeah. of great drivers have driven number 88. So I regret my implication that there are no great 88. Great and I'm not implying that any of them should be canceled for having the bad number now because uh, they were products of their time. Let alone the, they, the 808 drum machine, the Roll, famous Roland 808. It cannot be canceled because... There's an O. Kanye name-checked it also. Also, and, yeah. With, and he's above reproach. With the O in between two eights, it actually says Bob. Yes. Yeah. Or if you had a five and another O, you could make boobs upside down. Boobs. The, the 58,008 drum machine. <laughs> Entry 424.jb0412. Certificate number 37914. The Erica Typewriter. Uh, you may recall... Erica. When we were talking about... What's it called? The Samizdat? Is that what it's called? Yeah, Samizdat. The informal... Or the... The... Illicit network of anti-Soviet right. propaganda art. Uh, one of the ways in which music was spread in that era was... Uh, they were called ribs. Yeah, the the X-rays that had been imprinted as records, yeah. and they were literally called ribs because you could often see a rib cage yeah. in them because they were from uh, like a chest X-ray or something. They they weren't like a lot of those um, albums that were printed on heavy plastic that wasn't quite vinyl. You could only play them a few times before they started to degrade. They had to rig up kind of a like even to to what do you call it, etch them or to mm -hmm. to press them. press them. They had to like reverse engineer one of those from a contraband record player. Oh. Uh, yeah, like to repurpose the stylus to to, to scratch a record into uh, an x-ray plate. We actually heard from a listener named Tom who has a rib hanging in his house. Huh. He, does, he says he doesn't know about the authenticity. He's never tried to play it. Um, Where yet, did he acquire it? He doesn't say, but it is labeled as being a song called Faded Dreams, or maybe an album called Faded Dreams, by Pyotr Leshenko, uh, the king of Russian tango. Okay. I don't, know, I don't know who your favorite Russian tango artists are, but I've always liked Pyotr Leshenko. Um, and he was a, you know, because he was a dissident during the Stalin era, his popular tango recordings... 
uh, were not, were, you know, I think Tango and Foxtrot were both counter-revolutionary, whether or not Piotr was in good graces with the state, which he wasn't. There are ribs available online, although, um, you know, you cannot, you can't say for sure how, right. how true they are. Tom sent a Tom sent a picture and it looks authentic. I mean, you can see it, it's a, it's been a circle's been cut out of it and there's a hole in the middle, but you can definitely see a set of Soviet ribs uh, on the left and right side of the X-ray. I guess there are you know there are some that um, that are, you know I I bet you in the black market or I'm sorry in the uh, in now the eBay market for those I bet you the better the X-ray. The more it's probably not uh, the quality of the recording so much as it is the uh, the, the the better quality of the anatomy. Yeah, the the quality of the uh, of the cool graphic. Because let's face it, you're not going to spin that Russian foxtrot record too often. Yeah, here's here's uh, back in the USSR. Oh yeah, there were ribs of Western pop music too. Yeah, that's right. And this is it's like in a blank case. Well, anyway, buyer beware. But uh, I think you can you could acquire a rib if you if you so desire. We'll post Tom's photos of his ribs up on the Patreon page so you can check out what it might look like. Entry 1044.ez0510. Certificate number 51638. James Fraser Reed. There's a brief note from a listener named Kathy who wanted to connect uh, to Previous entries in the oh, omnibus. I thought you meant that she wanted to like to connect with us. Yeah, get together, like hey. send her phone number. Uh, yeah, and you don't even have to pick. Uh, you don't have to pick one of us. We'll we'll both hang out. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a obsessed Donner Party fan. Okay, having moved from the Midwest to Silicon Valley via I, the Donner. I assume she had pass? to go over the pass at yeah. least once. Uh, no, she actually recently sent us. We'll hear it in an upcoming show. She actually sent us a note from her annual trip from from. Uh, Missouri to Donner Lake, but uh, she wants us to know that at the top of Donner Pass, there's a sign. I, I've never gotten off the. There's a Donner Party picnic area there, which is a funny sign. <laughs> it is weird. But there's also a sign indicating that there was once a transcontinental airway arrow at the top of Donner Pass. Really? Yeah. How did we miss that? Which is a shame that it's not there anymore. I yeah. mean, I assume the ones that were in traffic tour sites were the first ones to get broken up and replaced with a. With a row of porta potties or something. Yeah, how strange. Or maybe they just put the interstate right over the top of it. That could be. It could be. Um, but alas, no intercontinental arrow pointing, transcontinental arrow pointing. Did they point west or east? I can't remember. Well, but back and forth. But I think west. It would point. It would point west there. I mean, really, you don't need an arrow. You don't need a head on the arrow. If if you have a rectangle. Yeah. It's clear that it's um an arrow pointing is, an axis. An arrow is cool though. And I imagine if but you're it, at the top of Donner Pass looking down, you could see, like, which way is the coast. But isn't it insulting to a pilot? Not only do you have to know um, that you're on your course, but we're going to remind you which way is west <laughs> and which way is east. Well, you can get disoriented in the air. I think a lot of pilots follow the interstate now, or follow yeah. certainly follow the road. Commer- right? Commercial pilots even? No. They, I think they, they they they've have, got flight paths? They're higher up, but my dad used to follow the road. When he was in some part of some, you know, some part of Yukon territories, he would say, "Well, there's the road," and he he would at least keep it in sight as long as you don't stop at the lights. But we—that's right. But we never, or at least, circle around until the light turns. 
We never saw a transcontinental arrow, though. Or at least if we did, we didn't know what it was. <laughs> I think few are left. Entry 1455.PS11516. Certificate number 48059. The Zaire Space Program. Uh, Sean had a bit of a Bader-Meinhof moment after listening to this entry about the German rocket engineers working for Mobutu in Zaire, and then they went to work for Gaddafi in Libya. Uh, we talked about the U.S. bombing of Libya in 1986, which kind of was a turning point in the U.S.'s policy toward Gaddafi, and also kind of allowed Gaddafi to consolidate his, you know, government's right. policy of of anti-Americanism. Although this that was post the bombing of the German discotheque. It was, and yeah. it was it was a response to that. Yeah. Um, and it, so uh, Sean had read about had read Marie Colvin's experiences in the U.S. bombing in 1986. She wrote a book about it called In Extremis. Gaddafi always used the death of his adopted daughter Hannah in the raid as a as a justification for his continued anti-American stances. But also it kind of, he positioned himself somewhat as a martyr of American imperialism more than just, you know, a personal martyr of it. Right. He, that makes him now a concerned father. I don't know. I don't believe we mentioned this on the show, but in 2011, I think the Irish times, Sean says, broke the story that Gaddafi's adopted daughter, in fact, did not die in the raid. I remember uh, this. There was some speculation that it had all been propaganda, that maybe she had been made up. In fact, she did seem to be a real person. This was investigation done after the Gaddafi compound was overtaken by Libyan rebels in 2011. Uh, the Irish Times found documents and photographs that show that Hannah apparently is still alive and working as a doctor in Tripoli. Whoa. Oh, so still in Lib Libya. Yeah. Ha Hannah Gaddafi is alive and well despite the colonel's protests to the contrary. You would, and you could, go to, you could go to have her do a... a colonoscopy? A colonoscopy, yeah. Uh, I, huh, I wonder, I wonder what... I, I'm, you know, I don't have my finger on the pulse of like uh, Libyan pop culture, but I wonder if that's widely known in Libya, if Gaddafi's many relatives and members of the Gaddafi administration have just reintegrated into... Civil society? Yeah, if you go to Dr. Qaddafi, wouldn't you be like, any relation? Yeah. No, no, I'm definitely not his dead Are you his, are dead, you his daughter. dead daughter? Huh, interesting. So, uh, and, you know, it, the U.S. did have to admit that there were, like, errant bombs in their raid. Um, yeah. Three of the bombs gone astray. So, I guess the propaganda kind of worked. Um, but Hannah Qaddafi, Hannah Montana Qaddafi? Hafa Gaddafi, Hafi mm -hmm. Gaddafi, Hannah Gaddafi is alive and well. Uh, we also heard from Ari, who in the note sent us uh, a temple of the a postcard of the Navu Temple describing uh, a secret geode place, a top mm -hmm. secret geode location that they were going to go to on their Illinois travels. We have both been to the Navu Temple. Yes. You and I have you been inside? Uh, no, I think when I was there, when did they rebuild it? I don't even know if it was there when I was there. Because I mostly just remember Nauvoo as kind of a colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, it was very, very noticeable and seemingly brand new when, when we stopped in. But. Because the Mormon, you know, the original temple that, that the early Latter-day Saints built there was, um, 
more of a log cabin. It was also, you know, it was it was a nice building, but it was like burned down and then hit by a tornado and not rebuilt until 2002. See, I think when I was there in the late 90s, there was no, there was no Mormon temple there. It was just kind of, oh. a, it, it, check out the blacksmithing exhibits and uh, stuff. Yeah, by 2006, there was, there was a, a very kind of, not, not uh, glamorous in the way that some temples are with the. Kind of the Emerald City. Yeah. Kind of uh, Disneyland look. Yeah, it didn't look like a space station. It looked like a, um, it looked like a old chapel, except the scale of it was about one and one and three quarters to one and scale. I, that might be accurate because it looks like it, the new temple does kind of reuse the design of the building from the 1830s, but just kind of twice as big. But yeah, maybe expanded for current sensibilities. Well, probably. <laughs> Probably congregational sizes. Oh, right. But, you know, even the height of it, it just seemed like, oh, interesting. But uh, he, uh, Ari. Oh, I should say, you know, you mentioned tornadoes. In uh, in Saskatchewan's defense, more tornadoes in Saskatchewan than any other part of Canada. Do you think that has something to do with the, the prevalence of extra leaves on their clovers? It could be generating need, vortex seas. Well, maybe you just need tougher clovers evolve with, oh. with greater numbers oh. of... Of leaves to withstand the the gale force winds. Uh, So Ari wanted to send us a follow-up so that we know how his top secret geode location worked out. They they locked on the it's a private it's private land, so they knocked on the landowner's door and got permission. What is this top secret geode? He will not divulge. All he says is there's a creek. That's the only hint. Is this some kind of treasure of the Sierra Madre? What what is this geode he speaks of? What you know what geodes are, right? Yeah. So the the big they're big round rocks you find in a riverbed, but if it's the right kind, you cut it open and it's, and it's got, got the, a thing the sparkly interior. Oh, so he's saying this is a top secret geode field. Yes, it's not a it's not a field for top secret geodes. I see. It's okay, a secret okay. location where geodes can be found. Abound. And all you have to do is find the right farmer and knock on the door and he's like, sure, go collect as many as you want. Apparently, which is why we're not going to give out the location. All right. Also, well, he didn't tell us. Maybe we could write him privately and say, come on. But he sent us pictures of the geodes he opened, and they sure are nice. Uh, one has gigantic calcite crystals, like kind of big big gray squares, so they don't look like the crystally ones. But I just love the idea that there's a top-secret geode location. My daughter loves, loves, loves geodes, so I want to take her there. Well, maybe you should reply to Ari and maybe maybe off the air, yeah. he would give us a hint yeah. as to its location if we promise not to divulge. Entry 423.jb3104, certificate number 32655, Erdos Bacon Sabbath. Two different correspondents, Joe on Facebook and Dave in email, pointed out that they doubt the official origin story of the Kevin Bacon game, oh, which its inventors claim allege was inspired just by watching two Kevin Bacon movies back to back on TV, right? And uh, and possibly an interview he had given to Premier Magazine earlier that year, where he said that he's appeared in movies with about everybody. Um, Do but, they think it's a CIA thing? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they think it's a secret mm-hmm. CIA plot to keep young people. Um, docile. Right. Like it's you, like Air America or Radio Free Europe. You can't be overthrowing the government if you're trying to figure out. Uh, how closely Kevin Bacon can be connected to, uh, you know, Red Manuel Miranda. See, it worked on older millennials, but younger millennials weren't taken in. We're increasingly, increasingly less uh, interested in Kevin Bacon's IMDb page. 
<laughs> their theory, which is pretty convincing, is that Kevin Bacon must have been chosen for the game because of the vowels and meter of his name. Kevin Six Bacon. degrees of Kevin Bacon. It's the same as six degrees of separation, the John Guar play. And not Bacon. a lot of actors have names that sound as much like the word separation as Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. Huh. Six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Interesting. And I think that's actually pretty convincing. And I like I, it too. And I now think these guys are liars and they never saw the River Wild back to back with uh, up in the the air up there or whatever right. they claim. Dirty Dancing. Yeah. No, wait, he's not in Dirty Dancing. He's in the other dancing one. Footloose. That's right. It's that's called it's called footloose dancing. <laughs> uh, how how uh, fascinating is that theory? Why did we not? Why when I was researching the show did I not ever see that theory uh, advance? It might be original to uh, to Dave and Joe. I, I, it never occurred to me that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon was just such an apt. But Dave and Joe aren't name. connected to one another, are they? Or are they? Right. What is what is Dave's Joe number and vice versa? <laughs> right. We may never know. Uh, we got a lot of, I mean, I saw a lot of conversation around uh, various futurelings that that were trying to, I mean, uh, we, we have no shortage of futurelings that have Erdosh numbers. And uh, then I, I think maybe not surprisingly, fewer that have Bacon numbers. M- and, m- many were uh, thinking that celebrities they had met uh, qualified, qualified them to them. have a Bacon number. And as a moment's thought were revealed, that's not how the Kevin that's Bacon game true. works. Yeah. And even fewer had Sabbath numbers. So, uh, so from the standpoint of futurelings, like you and I, it's funny how Erdos should be the rare one, but apparently not. Not if you are a futureling who works in the in math or physics or chemistry. We have more mathematician listeners than movie stars, which or or metal continues bands. to bug me. Yeah, me too. Jeremy pointed out that uh, the opening lyrics to "Take It on the Run" by Ario Speedwagon are relevant to this discussion. Go on. Because the singer claims that he heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend who heard it from another. You've been messing around. Right. So, so that would be four degrees of separation. From whoever was From the singer around. and his baby. That's right. She, the one who's going to take it on the run. Well, it, so he heard it on the grapevine, basically. Yeah. And if, you know, if everybody knows a hundred people, four degrees of separation is huge. That's the population of the United States, right? A hundred. Right. If you assume no crossover. What is that? That's a one followed by eight zeros, which is, oh, I guess that's only 10 million. But still, 10 million people, the size of what, New York City or something. It's so, the, the air does Oh, no, bacon, wait, it's 100 million. 100 million, right. Two, three, four, third, five, of yes. the, third of the people in the U.S. Sure. And once you discount people that never go outside and infants and, and toddlers. Who, who would have no idea uh, if his baby's been messing around? Oh, although a baby might be the titular baby. But the baby wouldn't know that. The, the ba- baby wouldn't but, tell the singer. But the baby would be the one messing around. Oh, oh, I see. See? Uh, yes, you're right. Because babies are messy. That's right. <laughs> uh, and they love drama. But it was, it was very interesting, and I, and I think we talked about this quite a bit on the show, that the inflation of your Erdos Bacon's uh, uh, Sabbath number, the tendency to say, I was on an elevator with Clint Black one time. Therefore. Um, and, and it felt like the mathematicians in the, the various threads were, they understood the rules of the game. That's and why I don't think my Erdos number counts, because I was, I was working on a, a work of popular interest and not an academic article with Martin Gardner. Right. Although it is a published work on the topic of mathematics. It was math adjacent. That's yeah, true. math adjacent. So it's, it's, I mean, I feel very secure in my Sabbath number, and, I, and I'm actually on the Kevin Bacon database 
as having a bacon number. Did I tell you I am too, but it's the wrong Ken Jennings. It's the Ken Jennings who was the who won the Tony for Sweeney Todd. Oh yeah. Too so, bad. So if you count. if you look me up, it's got all kinds of movie credits, which you'd think would clue people in that that's not me. Right. But there is no way that I have an Erdish number, but I do have a friend in the sciences who has one. And uh, would, he, like a, would he add your name it's, to a it's a it's a she, it's a lady scientist. Oh, I got taken in. You did. You did. How and could the the doctor says that's my son? <laughs> the, did we already do, do this bit on the show? Are we doing this for the second time? Go, go on, finish it up. <laughs> the mathematician <laughs> says that's my proof. How is this possible? <laughs> um, and so she has suggested that uh, that based on my many years of podcasting, that I have that I've discussed various kinds of. Um, uh, paradoxes enough that one of them might qualify the two of us to collaborate on a math paper where having written one with her, I would then be in the Erdos running. But what I said to her was, I don't want to do some, uh, some vanity Erdos number. I want it to be a real math paper. Because that is the thing. I'm sure there, there are probably mathematicians who would like Tons. auction off, uh, you know, putting you, putting your name on a, on a, a real or fake paper. Yeah, ton, I think that's. I think that happens a lot. Because the, there, there are these journals you can pay to get your article in. Yeah, and there's that long, long paper that was, you know, that has 600 co-authors that was just a, an attempt to get everybody in under the wire. But so I said, listen, I'm not going to just do something where I sign off on some dumb thing and we get it published in a vanity press. I want... I want us to. You want to really do real do, groundbreaking I, mathematical I work. I want to do some math here. What a dream for you to be able to spend a lot of time doing complicated math. That's what you've always wanted. I do kind of like it as long as it's theoretical math. I don't want to actually do the cranking of the. Yeah, yeah. You love the theoretical math omnibus entries. Yeah, you're, you're famous for it. I want it to be. You know, I want it to be a brain twister, not a finger twister. Speaking of a brain twister, uh, we got corrected by Robert, who uh, noted. I think we said Natalie Portman went to Yale. She went to Harvard. I was thinking of Jodie Foster. Whatever. What's the difference? I think maybe you said Harvard and I was like, I am, or you said Yale and I said, I am not interested enough to look this up. So I nodded. Or you said Yale. I couldn't have said Yale. Although I always say Yale. Uh, she was a co-author in a neuroscience paper published in NeuroImage. And interestingly, Larry pointed out that she may have a Sabbath number. Um, I don't I mean, find that hard to believe. Well, listen, you thought she, um, he thought it was because she dated a, or she was in a music video with a guy she was dating. I don't but, think that qualifies. But listen. Did she play harmonica on a blues record? <laughs> she is, uh, did you see that movie Vox Lux, where she plays kind of a Lady Gaga style pop star? I don't think so. Uh, it's not great. Yeah. But there's a full soundtrack album with her singing on it. Oh, hello. Which means that. Somebody on that record has sure. a Sabbath number. So she absolutely has to have, okay, that, that's what it means, right? If she has done, been on a recording, she could be a vocalist. Yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. I mean, th because Ozzy qualifies as a Sabbath. Uh, Ozzy is sure. equivalent to Sabbath, and I don't, I, I can't, I can't even picture Ozzy playing a tambourine. He'd be very confused by it. He'd be <laughs> turning it over well, slowly. Yeah, no, Ozzy is, Ozzy just sings, and he is Sabbath ground zero. That's, that's a good point. So in that case, Natalie Portman for sure has an Erdish Bacon Sabbath number. Yeah, wow. I don't know if anyone's computed it. Entry 536.AC0409. Certificate number 42674. Goat glands. 
I was abashed to hear from a Seattle writer named Seth who pointed out that I was I, I liked the um I, I think in back-to-back shows I I covered the Zaire space program and then this goat gland nutcase the crack, right. the crackpot doctor right and both of them were just little alleys of history I had never heard of was delighted to have just discovered only to find out from Seth that documentaries on both subjects had played back-to-back like had played in consecutive weekends at the Seattle Film Festival in like 2017. Wow. There are full-length documentaries on both the Goat Glands, the Crackpot, and the Zaire Rockets. Talk it, about Bader Meinhof. They are respectively Nuts and Fly Rocket Fly. So, uh, you know, they were both things I heard about in movies, but I had no idea there was a documentary about each, and now I feel like a dope. I mean, I, you usually uh, find a way to attend some of those Seattle film festivals, don't you? I'm always at, at getting roped into one or another. By me? No, by somebody that's oh, yeah, yeah. that's in one of them. That's like you got to come to my premiere. <laughs> it's like, okay, no, I go a lot. I, yeah, uh, but you can't see everything. They're huge. Yeah, there's so it, many but, films. I mean, there's like a hundred movies or something, right? Yeah, yeah. So I had no memory of um, of there being one about goat testicles. Goat and I, would, and was, I don't know if I would have picked that one. It was a popular episode. A lot of people love uh, uh, shows about animal balls. Matt had a follow up about. Animal balls. Uh, First of all. Animal balls, animal balls. (laughs) Automobile. (laughs) First of all, he says that they're delicious. He helped out a pig farmer who was castrating his boars. uh, And without me asking, he volunteers that uh, pig testicles taste great on pizza top, on pizza. Yeah. Really? Well, no, I wouldn't do Do that. Do you slice them up? Like what, what form do you... There are people that eat all manner of things. Pizza, though? How do you feel about head cheese? Oh, I don't, I don't like, um, you know, I don't mind like liver and kidney, but most other organ meats I don't love. And I had beef heart once and, and actually liked the way it was, it, it was kind of smoked, so it didn't taste so organy, but um, mm. I don't love, you know what I don't love is sweet breads. Mm. They've just got a weird texture where you can tell it's been in somebody's neck. How do you feel about uh, tripe? Tripe, I have more of a texture issue with. Yeah. How about awful? I don't even know what that is. It's just all that stuff ground up and... I don't love the name. Yeah, I thought, isn't awful just generic organ meat? Is it like a melange? No, I I think it's like intestine. I do like cabeza, which is, you know, the Mexican word for head, but it's actually just beef cheeks. It's just nice, soft, fatty beef. Oh, it's not brains? No. Brains. No, yeah. I think people don't order cabeza because they think it's brains. Because lengua is tongue. But no, right. cabeza is just... Um, Cheeks. And you can say, I want it... I think we've talked about this. You know, you can tell them I want it from the forehead or the ear or the what, muzzle mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. In uh, Romania, I was um, multiple times served uh, what, what appears to be a Romanian national a, dish. A sapina. Uh, a sapina as well. Are you John Roderick? You're meet, served. Meet your son. <laughs> Uh, no, it's like a kind of stomach soup, like a, like, it looks like chicken noodle soup, but then you realize the chicken is... Like menudo? Yeah, is, is, is menudo. Romanian noodo. Romanian noodo. And, uh, and a, a few times I was fooled by this stuff where they were like, healthy, hearty bowl of our signature soup. I was like, yes, looks great. Like the one sentence you can speak in Romanian is... Excuse me, sir, does the soup contain beef stomach or and then, chicken stomach? You know, what looked like chicken, then you'd realize it had all this cilia in it. It was terrible. And one time I was three quarters of the way through my second bowl of this soup uh, because I had been without food for a while. And then I saw a fat-coated fly floating in the fat-coated fly floating in the broth and realized that this fly had cooked 
You think it came, came in the stomach or it flew into the... I think it flew into the pot and had been... Well, to be fair, that could have happened with chicken noodle soup. Well, true. If, if left unattended. But you know, I'm just like, I'm there with my spoon and it's like, oh, what's this little morsel? Oh, it's a, a whole large fly. You're not really selling us on Romanian tourism the way you usually do. One, one time I was served it and I had some and I was sitting in an outdoor a seating area outside of a, a decrepit hotel and I actually poured the soup into the planter. Like, the plants had all like, died. Like Mr. Bean. Yeah, and I just poured it into the planter. It's funnier if the plant dies right after you do <laughs> it. It was a giant sunflower. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to recommending uh, pig balls on pizza, Matt, the reason why he's mentioning pigs is because uh, we talked about how, um, you know, goats are often used up here in the Northwest just to clear brambles and stuff off of land. People's yards are vacant lots. As we were doing the show, my niece sent me a text of a video of her goats. Which, I mean, she sent me this text at 1.41 p.m. We were deep into a show and here, I don't know if you can oh, hear. I can hear it. These are her Is that the goats, sound of goats? Goats running around. I just saw a time lapse yesterday of a bunch of goats just clearing a field of ryegrass in nothing flat, five hours or something. Did I tell you that I tried to get goats to come um, clear my property? I think you may have said this on the show. I can't remember what the, what the well, it turns hang out they, turned out to be. Yeah, they, oh, I did say it in the show. They can't eat holly oh, or right, laurel. Right. Goats, come on. You can eat tin cans. Get with the program goats. Uh, Matt points out that the new trend is to use pigs for this. Matt lives on Bainbridge oh. and has a friend who's a pig farmer. And he he has a ton of pigs, but not enough land. Hey, the, go- the goat people are still talking. Is it true that the goat friends don't speak dog language? Well, according to my niece, the goat friends don't speak dog language. Is that canon? I, I would assume maybe goats and dogs were, were interlinguary. Inter- I bet p- pigs and dogs. Yeah, but, probably. But I don't think goats and dogs. Goats can talk to seals. Dogs can talk to seals. I've seen it. I took, I've seen it too. I took my dog for a walk, um, whatever that beach is, kind of uh, near the Golden Gate Bridge on the north side of- Oh, yeah. On the north. The, they're over on the Sausalito coast. Yeah, but the, on the Golden Gate side. Right. Um, but yeah, the walking with my dog on that beach and a seal or sea lion just starts going, arr, 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 and the dog is like talking back. It was great. I have a friend that uh, has a house out on the coast, and he says that there's a river otter, but that lives in the ocean. It's an ocean-dwelling river otter that will come up on his dock and actively taunt the dogs. And the dogs run down, and the otter like stays just out of reach and dives in the water. The dogs dive in after it. It swims, you know, so that its nose is just like like inches away, but always keeps out of the way. They're mischievous. Yeah, they those are. Those otters. They're crazy. Nutty little otters. Um, so he, uh, Matt's friend on Bainbridge has more pigs than land. So he's constantly looking for somebody who needs land cleared because then he can just put a bunch of his pigs in some guy's pasture and let the pigs just feed them up, eat everything. Because they do eat everything. And then he'll, you know, at the end of the season, he'll give them some sausage or whatever. Um, he says what, they're. Who give the pig sausage? That's a little creepy. mean. <laughs> the pigs don't speak dog language. Uh, no, the farmer or yeah. whose, whose land he has barred. There are some pros and cons. He says with goat, you know, the goats will just eat the, the stems and leaves. So everything will grow back. Whereas pigs will just root up everything. Oh, they eat the roots. Yeah. So they'll kill stuff permanently, which is great if you're trying to get rid of blackberries or whatever. Um, unfortunately, first of all, they're s- louder and smellier. 
Um, they'll also just destroy the land. I mean, if you wanted everything, if you're going to like start hoeing and you want all the, you know, your, your acre of land just turned into dirt and all the rocks brought up to the surface, I guess it's perfect. But also it's just going to turn into a mud pit when well, it rains. literally a pigsty. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a word for that. If you Google things that are toxic to pigs. Which I have never done. You find masculinity, hemlock, cockleburr, henbane, should a bane be, both to hens and should pigs. Should be called hen and pig bane, in my opinion. Ivy, acorns, ragwort. Wait a minute, acorns? acorns? Really? I thought pigs liked acorns. Foxglove, elder, deadly nightshade, rhododendron, and laburnum rhododendron. are all highly toxic to pigs. Jimson weed, also known as hell's bells, prickly burr, devil's weed, Jamestown weed, stinkweed, devil's trumpet. Or devil's cucumber, also poisonous. But not, pigs. but not holly or laurel. Maybe you need some pigs out loose in your ravine. Yeah, but I, I feel like there's. Do you, a, think, do you think you have some deadly nightshade? I, I might have devil's cucumber prickly, in my yard. Prickly burr. How do you know if you have devil's cucumber? Yeah, devil's cucumber. I want the in devil. I've always believed that the devil's cucumber should stay far away from me. <laughs> like learn, learn whatever prayer you believe in, just to keep the devil's cucumber out of you. Um. But he says there's a benefit to pigs, which is that they will usually just stay put in their pens as long as you give them food and water and shade. Like pig, pigs will pigs will just chill, whereas goats and sheep get bored and then climb up on things, try to escape. Yeah, yeah. Well, so pigs, the the dumb and contentment of pigs is what you need. Again, the animals who most closely resemble humans. And that concludes. Omnibus Addenda, Volume 21. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.